0: Welcome, Alternative News Listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. For your listening edification, today is Thursday, January the 5th, 2023, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January the 9th, 2023, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Just a reminder, the opinions expressed on bringing light into darkness are my own and those of my guests and not necessarily those of co-op radio. We welcome an ongoing dialogue with our listening public. At koop.org, all comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 140th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome, this is Bringing Light Into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light Into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition in the absence of evidence and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and depression, not enabling it. Tonight, we continue to bring unreported and underreported news regarding the Ukraine-Russia-NATO conflict. Our guest is Marcy Winograd. She's a coordinator of Code Pink Congress. She's been working tirelessly for a ceasefire, diplomacy, and an end to weapons shipments to Ukraine. She explains the war and the Russian invasion was wrong, but that we provoked it, and explains how, in a compelling manner, worthy of your critical considerations. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis Today is Thursday evening, January the 5th, 2023, and this show will be broadcast live this Monday on January the 9th, 2023, from 6 to 7 p.m. So it's a real pleasure to be inviting a tireless peace advocate, our guest. Marcy Winograd is joining us from the West Coast and is a coordinator of Code Pink Congress. I'll do a more formal introduction, but Marcy, without any further delay, I wanted to welcome you to Bringing Light into Darkness.
1: Thank you so much, Pedro, for inviting me on your show. Yes, we need to bring light into darkness. So it's a great honor for me to be with you and your listeners in Austin.
0: Well, thank you for those kind words. Marcy is a a longtime anti-war activist. She served in 2020 as a Democratic National Committee's delegate to Bernie Sanders, She co-founded the Progressive Caucus of the California Democratic Party. She ran for Congress as a peace candidate during the U.S. war on Iraq. She also serves on the steering committee of the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, which calls for a ceasefire, diplomacy, and an end to weapons shipments to Ukraine. Marcy's activism began in high school when she marched against the Vietnam War and later joined the defense team of Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. She's also a retired English and government teacher, and she blogs about militarism and foreign policy issues. So again, Marcy, welcome. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Actually, before we get started, it's always interesting to me to see what radicalizes people towards a pursuit of social justice. And so when you look look back, I mean, obviously, you know, the Vietnam War impacted many of us in a very profound way, and it sounds like it impacted you. Can you tell us a little bit about your engagement with uh, Daniel Ellsberg and the significance of the Pentagon Papers and what actually kind of pointed you on this life path towards peace and justice?
1: Sure, Pedro. So what happened was uh, I grew up in a liberal Democratic Party family, uh, pretty mainstream in that regard, although my father later became an anti-war visionary himself. There was a war raging, as you mentioned, in Vietnam, and there was a draft. I had relatives who were in jeopardy of being drafted. I joined the anti war movement largely, you know, I think because I was inspired by my father, this visionary who had served in World War II and was vehemently anti war. He felt that the Vietnam War was unnecessary, and he had a virtual screaming match with my sister's boyfriend at the time who wanted to enlist. And so we marched as a family against the Vietnam War. We marched in Los Angeles, we marched in San Francisco. And then not long after, I mean, after I would graduated high school, during the summer, I went to hear uh, at a high school in Los Angeles, a talk by Anthony Russo, who together with Daniel Ellsberg, there are thousands of pages in the middle of the night at the RAND Corporation, the Pentagon Papers, which detailed the crime's of the U.S. government in Vietnam, in Laos, in Cambodia, the secret war that they had been conducting in parts of Indochina, the assassination of Diem in Vietnam. And I thought, I want to join this team. They were asking for volunteers and I was very interested. And so, you know, it didn't last that long because it was declared a mistrial due to the fact that the government had Colluded with uh, the prosecution, uh, with the judge, as I, as I recall. Uh, and so, you know, this mistrial was declared. But before that time, my involvement was to, to drive around with others in LA and check out the front yards and the cars of the potential jurors. You know, this was research for what they call voir dire jury selection, to see if there was any indication of, of where they stood on the war in politics, because the country was so polarized you recall. And my other work on the trial was to delve into the bowels of the Los Angeles Public Library because there was no internet at that time. And to comb through all of this microfiche to see if the information that had been released by the Pentagon, by Daniel Ellsberg and Anthony Russo and published in the New York Times and other newspapers, had already been released, had already been made public, even though you know the charge was that they were releasing classified information. And we also had a newspaper, you know, anti-war newspaper that we distributed. And I, I went around and spoke about the trial. I was not that old. I think I was 18, 19. But I learned later after submitting a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act, that the FBI had been trailing me as a result of this work, and also because I had attended a Socialist Workers Party conference, I think you know, the year I graduated high school, I had a friend who was a member, and there was a, a conference in Houston. I remember I went, and so for that I had a file. That and the work with Ellsberg, and you know, it was interesting to get those files. It took me six years. <laughs> they kept telling me no, no, and COVID came, and we can't. We're not, you know, we're not doing much now. And finally, they sent me the files and. It, one of the things that i read was how much they had infiltrated the vietnam veterans against the world the chapters all over the country and it, it was funny and then i'll i'll wrap this up but uh, i remember at the time my parents telling me oh you know we got a call from uh, a friend of yours in new york an old friend wanting to know where you were and what you're up to but we didn't get their number and it, and then i <laughs> read the FBI files, they talked about how they pretend, had somebody pretend that they were a friend of mine. But there were so many inaccuracies in these files, including, I think, the spelling of my name, saying I had some boyfriend named Harold, never had a boyfriend that I went to Germany, never. So that's Mm -hmm. what we were spending our taxpayer money on.
0: That's very interesting. What's striking to me, of course, is the pentagon papers without any doubt at all indicated how there was just a chronic misleading of the american public lying to the american public about vietnam and you know when you look at the afghan papers that that were also published here in the last couple of years in 2021 by whitlock and you know the same type of deal where you're You know, they knew we were losing, there's no chances of winning, yet they were telling the American public in Congress that we were winning and we just needed more troops, money and arms for the war machine. You know, again, just the absolute misrepresenting the truth to the American public for the sake of of an unjust intervention or war. Let me move on. I wanted to start off the show. One of the things that has recently occurred that I know you that you're aware of. In fact, I received a notice from Code Pink about President Putin ordering his troops to observe a ceasefire in Ukraine over the Orthodox Christmas, which I believe is like the the seventh and the eighth. January seventh, I think it's January. Is seven. that the seventh and the eighth of this
1: month? I think so. One?
0: Anyhow, what's more important is I want to talk a little bit first about a, a just peace, because if both sides do not feel their future national security interests are reasonably addressed and assured then what people call peace or truce may just be an avenue to create a larger military advantage for one side or the other. In fact, it seems like very clear now that we can say this is what happened with the Minsk agreement in 2014 and 15 following the U.S.-led coup of that same period. We now have both the former president of the Ukraine. Poroshenko, as well as recently the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, recently both admitting at different times that uh, Minsk was never entered into to stop the war, but to seek an opportunity to rearm and strengthen the military position of the Ukraine side before renewing hostilities rather than an honest attempt to seek a lasting peace. It's pretty disconcerting to me that when you combine those deceits with the history of Russia being misled and lied to regarding promises that NATO would not move an inch eastward in 1990 or whatever. And I think Putin has spoken to this, not that he's always been the most honest broker 100% of the time, but he's clearly been the the much more honest broker. However, it seems that this poisoning of the trust that he has for the West, because it was not just Merkel, it was all of the West that Merkel represented. It was lying to the Russians on this whole Minsk process, a process that Russia saw as a political solution to potentially end the killing in the Donbas that had resulted in over 14,000 deaths to Russian-speaking Ukrainians subsequent to the coup and up until the Russian invasion of February 24th. And it just seems that this poisoning of the trust that must accompany a diplomatic pathway to a peaceful solution is certainly this distrust is an obstacle to that peaceful off ramp from the raging war conflict that I think we all are are hoping for. So with that being said, I also wanted to include one other issue about peace in general that's not been talked about at all in our mainstream median, and that was the evidence that became available that the war in Ukraine could have been over perhaps a long time ago, but that key Western backers of Kiev sought to sabotage a potential peaceful settlement that was occurring through some negotiations. I'm speaking about the Istanbul peace talks, which saw top officials from each of the sides, Ukraine and Russia, gather in that Turkish capital, and then it was sabotaged by the prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson. And these are not just empty claims or empty accusations. This disclosure and confirmation from the US side, this was from an article in Zero Hedge back in September 1st, 2022, entitled Western Allies Led by UK's Johnson Sabotage Tentative Ukraine-Russia Peace Deal. In this piece, the disclosure and confirmation from the U.S. side that there was a tentative agreement, that the U.S. knew about this tentative agreement on the table for the Russia-Ukraine peace, it came from a number of sources, including former presidential aide and official at the U.S. National Security Council, Fiona Hill, who co-authored an essay in the September-October 2022 Foreign Affairs Edition called The World Putin Wants. And in that piece, according to multiple former U.S. senior officials we spoke with, she relates, in April of 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement, tentative Ukraine-Russia peace deal. Russia would withdraw to its position on February 23rd, when it controlled part of the Donbass and all of the Crimea, and in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries, end quote. So you have pro-Ukrainian paper also reported this, these issues, a tentative Ukraine-Russia peace deal, as well in addition to the article I cited from Zero Hedge. But there was a tentative deal... It was scuttled by Boris Johnson in Washington, and Washington indicated their response was to play down and discourage the tentative Ukraine-Russia peace deal results. So as we talk about the crisis here, I think just how ungenuine the information to the American public has been that nobody had really even realized that there was a significant advancement towards a peace deal that was, uh, was shot down by UK and the United States and I think it really just points to that they're really the ones that appear to be calling the shots, not the Ukraine. Are you familiar? Can you fill in any of the details on that or your reflections on that potential peace deal? What a great setback that was
1: to the peace process. Well, I think that you explained it very clearly. You know, the United States, the UK, they didn't want to make peace. They wanted to pump Ukraine full of weapons and encourage them to continue fighting to the last Ukrainian. For what purpose? Well, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, formerly on the board of Raytheon, said it plainly, to weaken Russia. For what purpose? To get Russia out of the way, to go after China, right? Mm -hmm. So this is uh, out of the playbook of the neoconservatives who want a unipolar world. We know that. And this has been in the making for a long time. It wasn't like Vladimir Putin rolled out of bed one morning and said, I'm going to reconstitute the Tsarist empire. I know that he has made speeches referencing imperial ambitions. People say a lot of things. There's lots of hyperbole during wartime. But the bottom line is that my feeling is this was a setup from the jump. The United States back in, well, as you mentioned, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, Following that, the United States made promises to, to those in Russia, we're not going to expand NATO's borders. We're not going to expand East. Of course they did. They went from 12 countries to 30 countries today. And that doesn't even include what we call the Enhanced Opportunity Partners, which is what Ukraine is. And we can get into that mm-hmm. later.
0: We definitely will get into that later. Let, let me just sure. mention, we have the great privilege of uh, visiting with Marcy Wintergrad. In fact, we're going to be turning to her article that she posted back in December that is really really relevant to understanding the increasing national security issues on both sides of the ledger so to speak but mainly with respect to how ukraine as a non-nato nation was actually becoming a nato nation that article let me just mention it now so i don't have to repeat it later marcy because i think it's a very well put together important read it's called letter to the left on ukraine december 7th 2022 is posted in antiwar.com. Anyhow, I'm sorry to have interrupted you, but please return to your thoughts.
1: All right, and then we'll we'll bring everybody up to date on those strategic partnerships. So, yeah, I mean, the timeline involves the expansion of NATO and those who challenge that as a provocation will say, well, most of the expansion was in 2004 or ended in 2004. And that's true. But as you mentioned, they have this whole NATO farm team, Enhanced Opportunity Partners, and Ukraine became one in 2020. And what does that mean? That means that they are integrated into the command structure of NATO. They're fighting alongside them. They're part of their uh, rapid response team that go anywhere, anytime. But back in in 2014, we know that Victoria Newland, who is now number three in the State Department, who was working in the State Department then, she went over to Ukraine and encouraged the coup that took place in the Maidan Square in Kiev and under a hail of bullets the president the democratically elected president of Ukraine he escaped you know and what was that all about well i think we have to take a look at the internal conflict within Ukraine that has been brewing for a long long time and that really is a conflict between hypernationalism and Ethnic Russians, cultural diversity in the regions such as in East. So, so it's the West versus the East, and some of the South. And you have this very strong movement that demands everybody in Ukraine fly the flag, uh, pledge allegiance to speaking Ukrainian and to being Ukrainian, and that this is the definition of what it means to be Ukrainian. Uh, and then you have the ethnic Russians, Crimea, of uh, the Donbass, Donetsk, Lansk, other areas that. Felt for a long time that they were discriminated against, considered second-class citizens, and in fact, right. we we see that the central government in Kiev, they they enacted legislation to ban the initiation of conversations in Russian.
0: These are all Russian-speaking. Let, let me just interject, if I could, some context to what you're saying because it's very true what you're saying. In fact, in the East, his name was Charles Schumann. Did some polling. Very extensive polling. He's a very renowned poller. And in the election in 2010, in which Yanukovych won in the East that you speak, that was predominantly Russian speaking, what he found in the Donbass, in the Luhansk, and in the Donetsk areas in particular, that over 80% of the people actually voted for Yanukovych, right? So when you think about the fact that this guy was cooed out. And then you look at a part of the country where 80% of the people in the region voted for the guy, but then blame it all on Russia, rather than the fact that, well, wait a minute, if 80% of the people are behind a guy that gets undemocratically thrown out of out of the office, led by, like you say, Newland and, and, and other interests or whatever, is it possible that there was a real revolt to regain that democracy rather than anything having to do with Russia? But I, I just wanted to interject that demographic
1: yes and i I think that we still see this demarcation in ukraine between the east and the west and frankly the area of donetsk they formed their own army they uh, made their own flag they did not want to be part of ukraine now i'm not justifying the russian invasion not at all in fact you know code pink right after the invasion in february we came out with a strong statement denouncing that but also recognizing that there were provocations for many, many years. About Newland going there, following that. You know, she was involved in engineering a transition government, involving a very nefarious character of the far right. And I think in addition to wanting to be the top dog in the unipolar world, there was also an eye on the markets, on Ukraine cutting it up, privatizing it. In fact, that's that's in black and white. Strategic heart, which I, I wrote about in my letter to the left on Ukraine the US Ukraine charter on strategic partnership which was signed November 10th 2021 that's just a few months before the February invasion states clearly that one of the agenda items is to privatize Ukraine this is right there in the document that was signed by our secretary of state Anthony Blinken and this is the U. I mean you can, anybody can google it the US Ukraine charter on strategic partnership okay,
0: so, so it was the uh, it was a second document right the um Correct So there was
1: there were first there was a joint statement, you know, on the U.S.-Ukraine strategic partnership that was signed by Biden and Zelensky. And then there was a second statement that's just a little bit more defined. And that Uh was signed by Blinken and his counterpart in Ukraine. And these partnership statements dispel a few myths, one in particular, that this war was unprovoked you know, we've heard Biden say this, and the media says it over and over. You know, it's like you repeat a lie often enough and people believe it, right? That mm-hmm. there was no provocation for this. However, in these documents, you'll see that they talk about how we're going to support Ukraine restoring its territorial integrity, including Crimea. And that was really a recipe for catastrophe because there was no way that Russia was going to give up Crimea again. You know, I just want to backtrack a little Crimea was annexed by Russia. I mean some people don't say annexed, but okay, annexed by Russia shortly after the Medan coup. There was concern because Russia has a naval fleet there. It's their portal to the Black Sea. There was concern that they would be evicted and replaced by NATO forces. So they annexed Crimea. They had had a lease for to lease Crimea until 2042 and I think past that as well. well. to to further illuminate this whole situation with Crimea. Crimea was part of Russia for nearly 200 years. Mm. It was in 1954 who gave Crimea, handed Crimea, which is, as I said, the site of the Russian naval fleet, over to Ukraine's administrative control. But Ukraine was still a part of the USSR at that time, Soviet Union. You know, They, they weren't anticipating this kind of uh, NATO expansion, the coup, the and a possible eviction and so forth. So, I mean, it's strategic defense importance to Russia. They're not going to give it up. If Uh, I can add, there was a referendum. In other words, there
0: was a a vote and there was a, a huge... Majority of the population voted well over ninety percent, and the vast, vast majority, again, probably eighty percent or more, I can't remember the exact number, voted to or become part of Russia than to stay with the Ukraine. You can call that what you want. But if your interest is to get an honest understanding of what transpired, it's important to also note that in contrast to the hundred or more that had recently been killed by right wing nationalist forces in the Crimea and the East, the referendum in the Crimea was bloodless. Nobody died. And what was emerging throughout all of the Russian-speaking areas was a repeated racist experience and assertion that Russian speakers were lesser human beings. Following the coup, protests emerged in the East, which resulted in over 100 people being killed. This is the violence that they wanted security from. No one wants to be treated as a second-class human being. But I think also just to elaborate a little bit more, there was a treaty, like you said that it wasn't just a blind Russian invasion of Crimea, that there's actually a treaty that a certain number of up to 10 or 15,000 or 20,000 troops were allowed in that port area because it was what their only access to the southern Atlantic. I mean the national security in- in- interests there and they were paying their you know annual lease and all of that. But Marcy, before we continue, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with our guest Marcy Winograd from Code Pink. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial.